The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer Jesus a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So this morning in our gospel passage from Matthew 22, we find Jesus being posed with yet another question from religious leaders. Last week, Luke preached on the section from earlier in this chapter where a group was sent to to Jesus to ask whether it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. And then just before today's passage in Matthew The Sadducees asked Jesus a question about the resurrection of the dead. But all of these questions are motivated not by genuine curiosity. Rather, these are opponents of Jesus who are attempting to trap him into saying something that could undermine his ministry. And in today's passage, they're hoping the third time will be the charm. As a lawyer emerges from among the Pharisees with a question for Jesus... Now, that this man is a lawyer doesn't mean he's an attorney in the sense that we would think of one. Instead, in those days, this meant that he was a Jewish expert in God's law revealed in the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. So this lawyer asked Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, the Pharisees in those days had convinced the majority of Jews of the virtue of scrupulously adhering to what they counted as 613 laws in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. So the trap this question is meant to set for Jesus is to get him to pick just one law out of the many so they can then accuse him of downgrading or disrespecting all the other laws. But as usual... Jesus' opponents are playing checkers while he is playing chess. Rather than picking out just one law to the exclusion of all the others, Jesus replies with the words that we're now so familiar with from our Eucharistic liturgy each week, right? He answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And he says, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. 
So rather than choosing just one commandment from the Hebrew scriptures, Jesus has chosen two. But the genius of his answer, of course, is that these two commands really do sum up the heart of all the commands in the Jewish law. As we've talked about before here, if if you took the Ten Commandments, the first four, so you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make a carved image, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, and remember the Sabbath day. All four of those first four of the Ten Commandments can be summarized with love the Lord your God with all you are. And then the last six of the Ten Commandments which are about honoring your parents and then against murder, adultery, stealing, lying, and coveting, they are all about loving our neighbor the way we would want to be loved. Thus, Jesus is completely justified when he asserts in verse 40 here, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And having answered their question, Jesus then beats the Pharisees at their own game, asking them a question that leaves them at a loss for words. But this morning, I want to focus on the implications of the first half of our passage, and that is the summary of God's law here. Here in Matthew, Jesus is using it in part to evade a trap, right, and to teach at the same time an essential value of life in his kingdom. But this morning, I actually want to consider this gr- these two greatest commandments, summary of the law, I want to consider it more in the sense that it appears in Luke's gospel. There, you may remember that Jesus was being put to the test by another teacher of the law who asked Jesus, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? To which Jesus responded by asking him, What's written in the law? How how do you read it? In other words, you tell me, man of the law. And there, in Luke, the lawyer answers. He's the one who answers. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus affirms that he's correct. But if you remember, it's then the man, we're told, desiring to justify himself, asked Jesus that fateful follow-up question. And who is my neighbor? Who am I really called to love? Well, Jesus then proceeds to tell him the parable of a robbed and injured Jew being cared for by a good Samaritan. Of course, in Jesus' day, the Samaritans and Jews had deep disagreements with one another on just about every front, honestly. They disagreed ethnically and geopolitically about the land the Samaritans inhabited, about whose claim to that portion of the promised land, who really had a valid claim to it. Then culturally and religiously, they disagreed about how God was to be rightly worshipped, as each group had their own temple, the Jews in Jerusalem and the Samaritans on Mount Gerizim. So as a result of these disagreements, Jews and Samaritans were taught from their youth to hate one another. And we see elsewhere in the Gospels that this hatred ran so deep that they would go to great lengths just to avoid crossing paths with one another. Right? It was generally agreed that that Jews would take the long way around Samaria when they were traveling, and Samaritans would always take the long way around Jerusalem when they were traveling. So as not have any uncomfortable encounters. 
So when Jesus responds in Luke to the lawyer's question about who exactly are the neighbors that he's called to love, Jesus' parable speaks loud and clear that even the people we most deeply disagree with qualify as neighbors we are called to love. Even the people we most deeply disagree with. Well, I'm sure y'all can already guess where I'm going with this here in late October. I'm not sure there could be a much more timely subject for us right now. Since we are living through a time in our society that is probably the most polarized in any of our lives. And with the presidential election now less than 10 days away, that polarization is reaching a fever pitch. However, for you, it may be folks with different political positions that are hardest for you to love. Or it may be people who disagree in some other way with a theological or moral position that you have strong beliefs about. Whatever it is, there will inevitably be people whom we are intimately linked with, our family, our friends in this church. Also, though, people whom we encounter as we go about our days, like the Samaritan encountered a Jew on the roadside, or encounter in social media. People who may or may not be Christians, but who see the world in very different ways from us on issues that we believe are really, really, really important. And for many of us right now, during election season, we're likely to feel the rub between Jesus' command to love even those whom we disagree with and our impulse to stand up for what is right or to contend for what we believe. And frankly, if any of you haven't been feeling that rub, hopefully you will after this sermon. Because what hangs in the balance is no less than our Christian witness and our own spiritual health and peace. So today, I want to talk about how standing up for what is right and what we believe doesn't have to be at odds with loving those we disagree with. That it shouldn't be. That these two greatest commandments of loving God and loving our neighbor are never mutually exclusive. They're never an either or, despite how easy it may be for us to rationalize that they are. And so today, I want to look to Christ as a model for how these two greatest commandments might be held in tension because he did it perfectly, of course. Believe it or not, though, Jesus lived in a society that was likely just as politically charged as ours. And he modeled the capacity to love people in the midst of that and even bring them together despite serious differences. One of the authors I'll mention today notes that, that two of Jesus' 12 disciples, Matthew and Simon, were from completely opposite ends of the spectrum, both politically and in just how they went about their life and their life situation. Matthew had been a wealthy tax collector working for the Roman government, while Simon had been an anti-government religious zealot who wanted to kill people like Matthew. But in time, Jesus taught both of them how to love one another. 
And he wants to help each of us to do the same. When Jesus commanded us to love our neighbor, he didn't provide any exceptions or caveats for those who differ from us, even on matters as significant as, as theology, morality, or politics. But I think the problem for many, if not most of us, is that we've never actually been taught or equipped for how to deal lovingly with differences. We haven't been taught, many of us haven't been taught that from either our families or the church. So this is what I want to talk about today. Drawing from the work and words of, words of pastors Rich Velotas and Jim Harrington, theologian and social psychologist Christina Cleveland, and pastoral counselor Tricia Taylor, I want to explore what makes it so hard to love those who differ from us but also what it might look like to love them. Whether it's people in our inner circle of family, friends, or the church, or people that we'll inevitably encounter, find ourselves in conversations with in our daily lives. I want to cast some vision for how we might go about loving them while still holding to our deep convictions and even standing up for what we believe. But first, let's talk a bit about what can make loving people who, with different positions from us, what can make loving them so hard? Harrington acknowledges that a big challenge for those of us seeking to love people like this is because the way we're made as human beings, our brains tend to perceive a difference of opinion as a threat. And this is a problem because even if we have a desire or com a commitment to love others, when we feel threatened, all of that can very quickly fly out the window. As we can struggle to think clearly and our, our impulse arises to either fight or flee. And according to Cleveland, there are also sociological factors that make us more prone to react poorly to those whom we disagree with. I'm sure it won't surprise you that studies show one of the most important predictors of whether we like someone is the extent to which their worldviews and experiences are similar to our own. That's the greatest predictor of whether we like them. And we especially like people who hail from similar demographic groups to us, such as age, education, race, religion, socioeconomic status. So all of us naturally tend to be drawn to people who are similar to us. Consequently, many Christians live and study and worship among people who are pretty much just like them. But all of this only makes those who disagree with us seem even more foreign or unfamiliar and therefore more of a threat. <laughs> well, you add to this also, those of us who use social media, this has only been made worse. For all the advantages and blessings of human connection on social media, our tendency on those platforms is to friend and follow people based on shared interests and values, which only distances us then from people with whom we disagree all the more. And then when it comes to the content that these platforms feed our way, they are financially incentivized to use algorithms like Facebook's filter bubble that show us only the content we are most likely to agree with 
The deck is stacked against loving our enemies. So all of us are naturally attracted to people and ideas we already agree with, both in person and online, because that's comforting. But unfortunately, studies also show that the more we spend time with people who are essentially identical to us, the more we become convinced that our way of seeing the world is the correct way. And in the absence of diverse influences, over time we tend to adopt more extreme and narrow-minded thinking, studies show. Then as our convictions go stronger and our our attitudes toward different ideas or culture, those become more and more negative. So our lack of proximity and exposure to those different from us can really stack that deck against us being able to love them. Just one example. There was a study done on Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. (laughs) I'm sure you can already imagine what that's going to be like. Right? who had little or no contact with one another, right? And it found that both of these groups, people in both of these groups, tended to associate what are uniquely human attributes to their own group, such as you know, human intelligence and the ability to experience secondary emotions like guilt and shame. But they, the study showed they did not associate those attributes with members of the other group. What does that mean? That means that they functionally thought of the members of the other group as psychopaths, right? And when you go into an interaction, subconsciously assuming that the other person is the equivalent of a psychopath, does love really have a chance? So insulation and lack of proximity from those different from us makes makes it next to impossible for us to treat such people well and love them as Christ does when we're given the opportunity. It's like we're being asked to love an alien. So when we are confronted with someone's opinion that we disagree with, we usually respond in one of a few ways. As I mentioned earlier, it's usually either fight or flight. When we feel threatened, our first impulse may be to fight, though we tend not to fight physically because of the the civil and social consequences of that are too high. Instead, we typically resort to using emotional and or verbal violence by judging and shaming those whom we disagree with. And we may do this directly to their face, but it's even easier for us to rationalize doing it passive-aggressively which social media offers plenty of opportunities for. One of those, I don't know who needs to hear this post, when we know exactly who's following us and who we want to read it. But our other common response is flight. Now this could mean that we respond by by disconnecting altogether. And of course there are times where such boundaries could be necessary if the person we disagree with is being abusive toward us or unwilling to respect our boundaries. But Harrington mentions that flight often takes the form of agreeing to disagree, which really usually means let's go our separate ways, or often does, and not staying relationally connected, sort of like a, the gentleman's agreement between the Jews and Samaritans. Although another more subtle form of flight is when we take the chameleon approach of going along with things that we disagree with or believe to be wrong and never revealing our own views and feelings in order to remain pleasing and keep the relationship the way it is. Some relationship. 
So what might it look like to love in these situations while still holding on to our deep convictions and even standing up for what we believe? Well, Harrington and Taylor suggest this requires that we seek to remain both connected and defined. I'm going to explain these. Connected and defined. We love the people with whom we deeply disagree. We do that with integrity when we aim at the goals of remaining both connected and defined. So let me explain. I should say, though, that what I'm about to talk about applies more to those we are intimately connected with, family, friends, parishioners, as opposed to the random one-time encounter we have where not all of this necessarily applies. But Harrington suggests that that staying connected with someone means a lot more than just agreeing to disagree and staying in the room with them or continuing continuing to be present physically with them. Rather, he says a high level of being connected to someone we disagree with comes through actually listening to what they have to say. Being curious about why they see the world the way they do. And even inviting them to share about their experience or provide some data that shapes their perspective. That's what love looks like. But even more than curiosity, they say that love requires that we give other people the right to be wrong. Loving others means we give them the right to be wrong. I'd never quite heard it put that way before. This means accepting that people get to have other opinions. This is not only how our country's democracy is supposed to work. It's how God set up the world, right? Now, this doesn't mean we have to say that their position is as good as ours, or that it's correct at all. But if we want the right to think what other people may believe is wrong, then the application of the golden rule and the second of the two great commandments is to treat others in the same way we want to be treated. Right? But we may say, but wait a second, John, wait a second. What about if the other person's position is really destructive and really unloving in our opinion? You, know, you hear a lot of folks on both sides these days talking about if this, if this or that candidate is elected, I'm hearing this all the time now, that the country will be ruined or never be the same. Now, my response to that may surprise you because I would say that may very well be the case. I'm not a political scientist, okay? But I do know that when our anxiety about that, about the destiny of America eclipses our willingness to love the people whose positions feel so threatening to us, then we are revealing that our hope is in America and our faith is in the false gospel of empire instead of our hope being in Jesus and the true gospel of following him in the way of sacrificial love of our enemies. So it's a way of kind of showing our cards and where our heart's at. And I I get it. I'm not preaching down. I've thought those things, said those things, been right there. In addition to that, though, you know, if we think judging and shaming others for their position is going to affect what happens in the big picture, I mean, we've probably seriously overestimated our authority and influence over things like the election. 
So when we feel that anxiety about the future, our first impulse should not be to try to alleviate it externally, right? By blowing our top, right? Taking it out on somebody else. Instead, it should be to look internally at what golden calves have captured our heart that we feel are getting threatened. Because we know our relationship with Christ can't be threatened, right? Nothing can separate us from his love. So what idol's being threatened? And once we've done that, then loving the person we disagree with can be aided by trying to put ourselves in their shoes. And what this looks like is considering the possibility that if I'd had all the experience that, experiences that person has had, I might actually see things the same way they do. That doesn't mean it'd be right necessarily, but if I'd gone through everything they had in life, maybe I would see things like they do. And having the humility to admit that every one of us has had experiences that bias us, right? Now, again, the, the aim is, of this is not to justify the, the other position is correct or even to change our minds, which is probably one of the fears, right? If I really listen to somebody else, what if they convince me that, that my perfect, inerrant view of the world is not quite so perfect, right? I mean, that's the subconscious fear there, um, the goal is, of trying to put ourselves in their shoes is to practice empathy, right? Empathy is what can give us the grace that we need to stay in relationship with that person. And we can have empathy for someone while still believing something very different from them. But the path of Christ-like love requires not only that we seek to remain connected, but also that we seek to define ourselves, to define our own position, as opposed to hiding or suppressing ourselves. And this, of course, requires that we first seek to understand our own position on whatever the subject may be, ensuring that we're somewhat informed, and that in doing that, we care more about the truth, right? Seeking the truth than we care about just justifying what we already believe, which is really tough and neat. It's God's grace, right? But if we really care about the truth, what we'll do is we'll interrogate whatever, wherever our default position is, we'll interrogate it from the other side. We'll attempt to ask ourselves without cynicism, what do people on the other side think about this, right? You may conclude that they're still wrong about it, but just that exercise is going to keep us from being so polarized. Of course, though, today with Many news outlets, right, both liberal and conservative, they are loath to ever provide a counterpoint, right? And again, social media is designed to feed us only what we already think. So interrogating our positions from the other side requires effort and intentionality. Nobody ever said loving others was going to be easy. It requires humility to examine our own biases and blind spots to admit that we're human, it's always much easier to see other people's biases and blind spots. But then we're just playing God. But once we've thought clearly about our position, we also need to express it when appropriate. Now, as you know, though, there are many ways to express ourselves. And the Bible doesn't say speak the truth. It says speak the truth in love. 
So love of neighbor also beckons us to do the hard work of trying to express ourselves in a manner that can be heard by others. That's hard work. Taylor offers this guiding principle of talk so people can listen and listen so people can talk. Talk so people can listen and listen so people can talk. But I also said we should express ourselves when appropriate because this doesn't mean, you know, being defined doesn't mean that we bring up our position at every conversation and every opportunity, right? No, we've got to be discerning about that. And if we have clearly and graciously defined our position with someone in the past, we don't need to keep doing it or keep bringing it up. We can assume that they know where we stand and if they want more information or clarification, they'll request it. I understand that some of this I'm talking about may sound really different from the ways we're used to engaging others about subjects that we're passionate about. I get it. If we're honest, most all of us have been trained and habituated to hate our enemies. We may not use that word, but to hate our enemies to one degree or another. And that, that habit dies hard. And yet that's what the Christian journey is about. It's a journey of allowing Jesus to replace our bad habits with good ones, with healthy ones. So in this journey to try to learn to love our, our neighbor and those we disagree with, we may fail and mess up. In fact, I'm pre- I can pretty much guarantee we'll fail and mess up. But that's okay because we're learning in the context of grace and the safety of, of Christ's unconditional love. We can move beyond mistakes. So before I close today, I want to offer just a few more habits that could help us, that we can replace our bad habits with, that could help us respond in a Christ-like manner as I've been describing. First of all, the most important and effective habit on this subject is fixing our hearts and minds on Christ in the way that he has not only loved, but pursues and continues to pursue us despite our differences with him. Christina Cleveland reminds us that Jesus continues to pursue us despite theological differences, right? Since his theology is more comprehensive and accurate and perfect than any of ours, And he also continues to pursue us despite cultural or what we might say moral differences, right? As he is holy while we continue to struggle with sin. So as our hearts grasp how Jesus hasn't discriminated against us on the grounds of difference, it will serve as an antidote to allowing such differences to prevent us from loving our neighbors. So that's the first habit. A second step we can take is we can begin being intentional to cultivate relationships or at least be exposed to more people with views and ideas that differ from our own. Small steps toward this can be taken on social media where we could choose to intentionally follow non-toxic people from the other side of an issue and, just as important, unfollow people on our side of the issue that are toxic, that are polarized. Following them is not going to produce the fruits of the Spirit. And we can begin thinking critically about our sources for receiving the news and whether these sources have ever 
I mean, think about how you typically get the news and ask yourself, has this news source ever produced the fruits of the Spirit in me? Has it ever compelled me to love someone I disagree with? If not, get rid of it. Cut it off. It's hurting you more than it's hurting anybody. Which is a good segue to a third step, which is to turn away from our cynicism. Right? And what this means is being willing to believe in the best of people, especially everyday people right, on the other side. Harrington and Taylor bring up the example of the current controversy about schools opening, and they model thinking the best of people by reminding us that, of course, everyone wants kids to learn. And of course, everyone wants the older population or vulnerable health, folks with vulnerable health issues to be safe. Everyone wants both of those things, except a few psychopaths, I guess, right? The everyday person wants those things. But when one side accuses the other of wanting to kill grandma, and the other side says, you're trying to take away my freedoms, that's being cynical. That is not giving anybody the benefit of the doubt. That's contributing to the problem polarization not helping it. So turning away from cynicism, only two more here. Fourth, when we do find ourselves in a situation where we're confronted with a perspective that triggers us, right, and makes us feel threatened, pay attention to that and tend to it before reacting. Action is simple. Actions as simple as taking some deep breaths can make a difference. I know some are thinking, Psh, especially in the church where we've disconnected the mind and the body, right? But deep breaths that stimulate the vagus nerve actually tells our body that we're safe, which then has an effect on our mind, right? That's a gift from God. That isn't some secular psychobabble mumbo jumbo. That is a gift God has given us to calm ourselves as embodied humans, right? We can also, of course, say a little prayer to ask God to show us how to love in this situation instead of being on the defense. Okay, finally, in our off time, when, so when we're not in the middle of a difficult interaction, we can work on cleaning up our own side of the street. This means that if there are past interactions where we haven't been our best, and what we've done is caused fight or flight in us or the person we've disagreed with. Those, those instances that still linger in our hearts and minds, we can seek to make amends and take responsibility for our part and work to rebuild trust as being a safe person in time. And we can also examine the wounds from our past, right? Which may contribute to our, our tending to engage people with certain views, to have certain views engage them unlovingly. If we don't work to forgive the ways that people have wronged us, we will inevitably project those same harms onto others who represent them in the present and in the future. Inevitably, it'll leak out. So I hope today I've been able to provide some picture of how we might go about loving both God and those with whom we have deep disagreement because that is how God has loved us in Christ. 
And my hope is that you might seek to live that picture out with God's help, of course, in the coming days. Because I'm sure there will be no shortage of opportunity. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.